Our text this morning is found in Acts chapter 12. We'll be beginning the 12th chapter of Acts, looking at verses 1 through 5. The church at Antioch is now firmly established, and we observed at the end of chapter 11 how the brothers and sisters at Antioch demonstrated their spiritual maturity by receiving a prophetic word from a man named Agabus. And when they learned from what Agabus said that there was to be a famine that would affect Judea, they raised funds and they sent a contribution to the church in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so we're picking up in chapter 12, and what is happening is that there is a shift occurring as we read through the book of Acts. We'll discover in our reading that the focus is about to shift from the churches in Jerusalem to the churches that will be planted across the Roman Empire. Now, it's been demonstrated to us that the gospel is not only for the Jew, it is also for the Gentile or for the non-Jew, and God left no room for questioning this when the Holy Spirit fell upon the gathered Gentiles at the house of Cornelius um, under Peter's preaching. But Peter himself, he is going to begin to receive less and less attention in the book of Acts, while Paul will begin to receive greater prominence. And this makes sense because Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and that is the direction that, that the church is heading in towards the Gentile areas. So chapter 12 relates an incident in Peter's life before this shift of focus takes place. Allow me to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. <clears throat> Verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. This is the word of the Lord. First of all, what we see in this text is the attack. The attack. King Herod is Herod Agrippa I, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. And it was Herod the Great who was king of Judea at the time of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth some 40 plus years earlier. And if you recall, it was Herod the Great who ordered the killing of every male infant under the age of two in Bethlehem. The jealousy and the mental instability that prompted such an act was consistent with what history tells us about the dark character of Herod the Great, especially as he got older, he got more and more mentally unstable. Herod Agrippa, his grandson, and the Herod in focus in our text today, demonstrates his own evil streak. The execution of James and the imprisonment of Peter uh, were not done out of jealousy. However, Herod did do these things in order to please the Jews and their leaders in particular. Herod was a politician. That is King Herod of our text. And so he did what it took to maintain his favor 
with his subjects. Now, if you recall back in the early days of the church, the believers found great favor with the people. That's changed. Ever since the execution of Stephen, the tide of favor has turned against the church. Many Jewish believers in Jerusalem fled the city, but the apostles and the leaders of the church, they stayed. However, they are no longer popular. James, here, chapter 12, is the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Now that should sound familiar because Jesus called James and John to follow him many years before. And they had left their nets, their fishermen, they left their livelihood, they left their father, and they had followed the Messiah, and neither one of them had ever looked back. Now James is, is, is currently an apostle and a recognized leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he, along with others, are arrested. There's no hesitation. Herod orders James to be beheaded. And that's exactly what the Jews wanted to see. This Jesus sect was no longer tolerated. It preached, in their view, a false and a dead Messiah. So the idea was you cut off the head of the snake, and the snake will die. At least that is how it's supposed to work. But the church is not of this world. The church does not follow the rules. The church is supernatural. And it operates under the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit, not according to man's expectations. That means that this church here this morning, we are supernatural. I know we're meeting together physically, but first and foremost, this is a spiritual gathering. So what I want us to observe, first of all, is that the church is not dependent upon its leaders for survival. The church is not dependent upon its leaders for survival. Apostles and pastors and teachers, they are a gift to the church. But unlike any other earthly organization, however, the church does not look towards its leaders for life. The reality is you, can, you, cannot, you cannot cut off the head of the church because Jesus Christ is the head. You can kill or imprison the physical leadership, and Jesus will still be very much alive and well, and will still be calling the shots. A good leader in the church only operates under the direction of the head anyhow. God will raise up more leaders if the ones he chose are removed. Now, what happened to James? It grieved the Lord, no doubt. It was not ideal to lose James, and it broke the hearts of the believers, but God was not taken by surprise. In fact, he allowed it to occur. He had a purpose, and God's agenda will still march on. And we need to hear this in our day, especially because in our day, we have a number of celebrity pastors. And we have this phenomena of many churches that are, that are kind of skating along on the momentum of the personality or the energy or the charisma or all three of their pastor. And if that pastor were to leave or, or heaven forbid die, then the church, if it didn't collapse, it would certainly shrink. There have been instances when the Lord allows a particular pastor to be, to be removed precisely because the church was built on him and not on the Lord Jesus. There's other pastors that take on too many duties outside of their calling. They do this with the best of intentions. Leaders by nature lead and will naturally assume responsibility that is foisted upon them. 
But a pastor is first and foremost a shepherd. That means that that he feeds the flock with the word of God. He protects the flock from false teaching. A pastor counsels members in spiritual need. And, this is important, I point it out a lot, often overlooked, a pastor should be training the brothers and sisters to minister to others. So when a pastor takes other responsibilities outside of the ones that I just named, he steps out of his primary calling. Pastors become administrators of the church, or they become CEOs of the church, or sometimes they just simply become preachers who stand in a pulpit Sunday after Sunday, but don't actually interact with their people as one who watches over their souls. A pastor is more than merely a preacher. And because pastors can assume roles outside of their calling, and sometimes these roles are forced upon them, the members begin to look at their pastor or expect their pastor to wear too many hats. The members become dependent upon their pastors or elders to do all of the work of the ministry and more. And so when a pastor leaves or is removed, the church flounders. And the reason is, the reason for this is because God will not allow his people to lean upon their leaders. God wants his people to lean on him. Now, heaven forbid that we lose our leaders to imprisonment or execution, but it does happen frequently in other places. You understand that, right? Persecution is alive and well in many parts of the world right now, this morning. That's why I get up here Sunday after Sunday and I I remind us in our praying together of the persecuted church. And those churches that lose their leaders frequently, they still carry on. God raises up more leaders. They must. If the church doesn't carry on, then it was not a truly established church in the first place. When I was in Nigeria, I would meet a few mornings a week with with the young men that works for us, usually about two or three of them, and whoever happened to be around, lingering around the mission station, which is quite common. So I typically have a group of four or five young men sometimes even some ladies that that would join us for a morning devotion, Bible study, time of prayer before we started the work day. And though I planned at that point to be in Nigeria for many years, I frequently told these young men that I was discipling that, that they needed to be thinking about what would happen if I had to leave one day. I didn't anticipate leaving. I just felt to remind them of this often. I wanted them to understand that, that they needed to learn to hear from the Lord through his word on their own. They needed to think through whether or not they would take a stand for the Lord if their missionary was taken from them. And I frequently reminded them of how unstable the spiritual environment of Nigeria is. It could be a reality for some of these young men to be in a church one morning and to be overrun by Muslim extremists with machine guns that are that are firing at the people in the church. So that makes your stand for Jesus real in a hurry if you take a stand for Jesus. So, of course, as I was reminding them of these things, I had no idea that in 2015 I'd be kidnapped, and I had no idea the Lord would ultimately lead me out of Nigeria. And I don't know how these young men, who I put so much time into training spiritually, are doing these days, but I do know I did my best to ensure that they knew Jesus is Lord of the church, and Jesus does not need me in order for his church to stand. The church is not dependent upon its leaders for survival. 
God will not share his glory with another. Secondly, we need to observe that this is a spiritual attack. This is a spiritual attack. Man is the agent. King Herod, like his grandfather before him, is allowing himself to be used by the adversary of the church, the devil. The goal of Satan, according to Jesus, is to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he will do all that is in his power to destroy the work of God. How does God do his work? God does his work through his people. And so what does Satan attack? Satan attacks the church, his people. And the principal way that he does this is through the agency of man. In this case, it is the adversary working through governments. We see that quite often throughout history. A primary weapon in this fight employed by the adversary is discouragement. If he can convince the people of God to, to throw their hands up in despair, then he will have made the church ineffective. Executing a leader, an apostle at that, James, is an effective way to intimidate the believers. Don't you think so? It also encourages the opposition, and that's exactly what happened. The unbelieving Jews, verse 3, they were pleased. And when Herod observed that, he was emboldened to arrest Peter as well, no doubt with the same intention to put him to death. Now, if you pay attention to such things as I do, you'll, you will have noticed, maybe, maybe even if you don't pay attention, you will have noticed this, that a number of high-profile evangelical pastors have fallen in the past several years. In some cases, it was sexual misconduct, and others, it was financial improprieties. Uh, still others, um, pastors intoxicated on the power of the position in large churches have used their authority or their influence to, to spiritually abuse people under their pastoral care. I just read an article yesterday about a pastor of a megachurch in Ohio who's been removed by his church and is under an internal investigation because of, of doing just that, um, treating people harshly or as it has been claimed, uh, abusing the people under his care. We'll see if he's exonerated or not, or if those things turn out being, being true. But my point is, without going into names or details of, of the offenses of pastors over the past few years, suffice it to say there have been a number who have fallen from, from high positions. They fell hard, and when they did so, they discouraged those under them who had previously looked up to them. And in nearly every case, it was one of the three deadly temptations to pastors in particular, which are money, sex, and power. Now, the Apostle James was not abusing his position. He was not caught in some sin. He was put to literal death, but at least he died as a man with no stain upon his character. But every time a leader in the church falls, regardless of, of how it happens or what happens, it is a sort of death. At least, that's what it causes in the church. It causes spiritual death. The fall of leaders calls church members to find another church. Often calls people to have a crisis of faith. And this is another reason that we cannot look to men as our ultimate examples, but to Jesus and to those leaders who follow closely after him. The fall of leaders in the church it also gives the world an excuse to point the finger. I think we're all aware of that. See, those Christians, they, they don't really believe what they teach. If so, their teachers would live by their teaching. This is a spiritual attack. The examples I just gave. 
are spiritual attacks. Chopping James' head off seemed to give him so much favor with the Jews that Herod decided he would take care of another prominent apostle, Peter. Verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. King Herod, he was afflicted with the same malady that all of us are to different degrees, and that is that he was a people pleaser. He was a people pleaser. Of course, in his particular position as king, he could not really afford to lose the favor of his subjects or those above him, namely the emperor of Rome. But he certainly did not have to add sin to sin by also arresting Peter. Our tendency to people please does not typically result in something as drastic as what Herod did, but the motivation is the same. We want people to like us. No one wants to be the odd man or the odd woman out the person from whom everyone remains kind of aloof. And so this is the voice of a personal experience. We say yes, perhaps, to doing things that we really don't have the time or energy to do. Uh, we say yes, and we neglect our own needs and the mistaken notion that what the other person needs is always our responsibility to fulfill. Sound familiar? At other times, we reveal our people-pleasing natures through failing to take a stand. Failing to take a stand. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to become the center of attention. We don't want to be the one who risks standing alone because we went against popular opinion. And what this all boils down to is the fear of man. It's the fear of man. You cannot serve two masters. You either please God or you please man. And sometimes the two are not in conflict. But often, unfortunately, they are. We fear the displeasure of man and we give no thought to the displeasure of God. We do not want to intentionally offend anyone. And often, loving your neighbor as yourself means you seek to please others in self-sacrificial service. And you do that because you fear God and you keep His commands. But when what you do is for the sake of pleasing people, and, and is in direct contradiction to the will of God, your fear of man is swallowing up your fear of God. And that's what we see in King Herod, a desire to please people. The devil, it's not very creative. And sometimes God allows his best men and women to die in the prime of their ministry. Sometimes God allows his best men and women to die in the prime of their ministry. That uh, would be the case with James in our text. Sometimes the Lord allows his most effective men and women to fall in the prime of their ministries. And the reason is that when it comes to leaders that fall, God will not allow sin to fester in the darkness. The Lord would rather see all of its ugliness come to light and bring shame upon his church before the world than for sin to lie silently and corrupt the whole church. Hard word this morning. Remember, 1 Peter 5, 17, judgment begins with the household of God. The Lord expects the world to sin. God is not surprised when the world sins, neither should you be. God does not expect his people to sin. And so he will only let sin lie silently. 
hidden away within his church for so long. And it's a good thing when it comes to the surface. It's not a comfortable thing, not a pleasant thing, but it's ultimately a good thing. So the attack. Secondly, we see the situation here. I mentioned the devil is not very creative. And what I mean by that is he follows the same pattern over and over. 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We should not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. We should learn how he works and recognize when he's at work. Herod arrested James and killed him. Now he would arrest Peter and kill him. And though the adversary does not typically try anything new under the sun, the Lord himself is endlessly creative. You ever notice that in your own life? Wow, the Lord is creative in his dealings with his people. So we wonder why James was killed and yet Peter, spoiler alert here, escapes. Well, in both cases, God is working out his purposes. The Lord could have saved James, could he not? He could have saved James. He didn't. And he didn't make a mistake by allowing James to die. It is that God has a reason for allowing James to be put to death and a reason for Peter to have a different experience. God's up to something. Either way, both James' death and Peter's arrest serve God's purposes. We're told here that Peter was seized during the days of unleavened bread. This is the week-long feast that begins the day after Passover. One reason that Peter was kept in prison and not immediately put to death is because Jewish law prevented trial or sentencing during the Passover week. Verse 4, Herod intended after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Herod could not legally immediately try or sentence Peter. And so the Lord had so arranged things that he had time to work in this situation. The Passover, if you'll recall, is a celebration of the Lord delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. Each Jewish household in Egypt sacrificed a lamb and placed the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their house. And when the destroying angel saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over the house, which means he did not kill the firstborn male that was sleeping within. Because the Egyptians did not put blood on their doorpost, guess what happens? They lost the firstborn males in each of their families as a judgment from God. So tragic and so horrifying was the scene of death the next morning in Egypt that the Egyptians demanded the Israelites to leave their country immediately, quickly, in haste, get out, now. And so that's what the Jewish people did. They took unleavened bread with them because the bread did not have time to rise. They were in a hurry. Therefore, Jewish families to this day clean out all of the leaven from their homes during the Passover week, and they eat only unleavened bread. Passover is a celebration of deliverance. The irony is that, that it was during Passover that Peter was imprisoned. He was enslaved during the celebration of freedom. The blood of our Passover lamb, that's the Lord Jesus, the blood of our Passover lamb does not free us from human slavery. It's not its point. It does far more. It frees us from the slavery of sin. Romans 6, 19, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. The unbelieving Jews, they were physically free to celebrate the feast, but they were spiritually imprisoned to their sin. 
Peter was in prison during the celebration of deliverance. But catch this, he was spiritually free. He was spiritually free. Sometimes those life situations that cause you to feel the most constrained are the situations where God is preparing to work in the greatest ways. We want to be free to do what we want to do, and we think that in this way that we are free. But freedom does not lie in doing whatever you want to do. Freedom lies in allowing God to do what only He can do. That's freedom. You will seek to deliver yourself unless God puts you in a position where only He can deliver you. And that was the situation that Peter was now in. Verse 4. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. A Roman squad was composed of four soldiers. Though Herod was the king of Judea, he was appointed by the Roman emperor, so he had Roman soldiers at his disposal. A squad would, would take a three-hour shift. So four squads, four soldiers apiece, taking a three-hour shift in a 12-hour period. That's the picture here. In other words, Herod went to ridiculous lengths to make sure that Peter was secure. You know, no doubt, maybe he recalled years before when Peter and John, Peter and John had miraculously been released from their jail cell. You remember that, Acts chapter 5. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Peter had already been released once. Herod wanted to make sure that in the delay, there was no repeat of such an incident. Four guards for one man is a bit extreme. Peter was not a violent offender, yet so threatened by Peter's presence that Herod feel that he kept him surrounded 24 hours a day by four soldiers changing shifts every three hours. I want you to consider the situation. The most powerful man in, in, in Judah, in Judea, the king, has ordered that Peter be arrested. The king himself is against you. Beyond that, Peter has no support from the leading Jews, who also weld significant political influence, and Herod is determined to please them. The church cannot do anything about it. The believers, they are already marginalized, they are already scorned, and the whole point of this exercise is to intimidate the church out of existence. Remember from verse 1, Herod laid hands on some from the church in order to mistreat them. It was more than James and Peter who were persecuted. Understandably, Christians tend to keep their heads down when they are prone to get their heads chopped off. In other words, the whole secular power structure is set against the church. We know nothing about that. That is so opposite to what we're accustomed to. The church has traditionally received a favored position in American society. We are an anomaly in history. We're thankful for that anomaly, but we're an exception. In this country, it's been respectable to be a member of a church. It helped advance your career. It gave you business connections. Got to rub shoulders with the prominent people in the town or the city. Church people were the social network before social networks went online. Ministers and pastors have traditionally been given favored status alongside of professionals and local political figures. 
it's always been respectable to be a Christian in our society. That is changing, of course. I'm sure you've noticed. That is changing. But we still receive the, the residual benefits of what the church has been in this country. Today, at least today, we do not fear arrest for simply claiming to follow Jesus. I don't think anybody's sitting there gnawing your fingernails because you might be arrested when you step out of this church. And even if we do suffer some form of religious persecution, we still have legal recourse in our system to appeal it. Peter did not. Peter did not. And let's not forget what's behind this imprisonment. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Herod was not the real enemy. Neither were the Jewish leaders. They were pawns. They were ignorant, but they were willing, playing right into the hands of the adversary. Our struggle is against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. So when all the forces of hell and the fury of man are arrayed against you, what do you do? Well, I guarantee you that the church was tempted to despair. If the church or if the king will do this to Peter and James, he will do it to us all. Have you felt that kind of pressure? I don't mean have you been thrown in prison by the, by the powers that be. I mean, have you been in a situation where there is nowhere to turn? Your friends are helpless to assist. There is no higher earthly authority to appeal to. There's no possible way of escape. You are trapped between four guards whose sole duty it is is to make sure you cannot move an inch. They're determined to keep you imprisoned because your escape would mean their lives. All paths are blocked. All doors are closed. And the fate of the last person who happened to be in your same position was death. In a word, you are in an impossible situation. If God does not intervene, you will not budge. If God does not move the mountain, the mountain will crush you. Do you know that kind of pressure? If you don't, you will. Because at some level, in some way, God will place you in circumstances that will so hem you in that if there is absolutely nothing you or anyone else could do, you would despair of life itself. But Peter will not despair. And the church will resist the temptation to sit and do nothing because there is something they can do. Only one thing that will make any difference because it is the one thing that God in His grace and His goodness has ordained to be effective in this situation. And that is prayer. Prayer. So we've seen the attack, the situation, and now we see fervent prayer. Verse 6, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So Peter was kept in prison. So fill in the blank in your life. So this is happening, but prayer was being made fervently. What is it in your life that, that feels like those desperate prison conditions? So I am experiencing this, but prayer. Don't forget God's in control. 
Even though the Lord allowed James to be put to death, he's still in control. Even though Peter's in prison, God is still in control. You see what the Lord's done here? He has placed the church in a situation where they can do absolutely nothing but pray. And that is no accident. Maybe that's a position we as a church need to be in. Where we can do absolutely nothing about the situation but pray. That would drive us to pray like we've never prayed before. The church is not dependent on leaders or apostles, but on God and prayer. I want you to hear that this morning. And the Lord will place you in a situation that calls you to learn this lesson. If there is still something you can do, then you will do it. If there's one more phone call to make, or one more person to talk to, or one more attempt to free yourself, one more thought that maybe you can solve this problem on your own, then you will do it. You will try to figure it out until the Lord finally allows you to see that there's no figuring it out. He wants you to pray. He wants us to pray. He wants you to pray. Prayer is dependency. Prayer is a confession. It's, I cannot do it, but you can, Lord. And so long as you feel like there is still a chance that you might can deliver yourself, you will not pray. The tragedy is that we tend to go to prayer last instead of instinctively making it our first priority. How much easier would it be if we just all confessed at the outset that we are helpless? How much less of a struggle would we have if we fled to God and cast ourselves upon His strength in our weakness instead of waiting until we are brought to the end of ourselves? Prayer is simple. What do you think the church was praying for? They were just simply praying for Peter's safety and release. Now, now there were probably all sorts of variations on that prayer as different brothers and sisters expressed it in different ways. But in the final estimation, they simply prayed for Peter with the knowledge, the limited knowledge that they had of his situation. It says prayer for him was being made. Do you think God knew what was going on? Yes, he did. Sometimes we can get so stuck on how to pray that we fail to pray. Keep it simple. God knew what Peter needed. God knew what he intended to do. And God knew that the church didn't know much, only that Peter was in prison and that when James was in the same position, it did not end too well for him. And so they simply prayed. Prayer is not about eloquence. Prayer is not about impressing God. It's about the opposite. It's about your weakness and dependency in the face of God's strength and ability. So pray like you believe that He can answer what you cannot handle. Prayer lays hold of the goodness of God. Prayer lays hold of the goodness of God. It doesn't say that in this text, but God's goodness is the foundation of all praying. God's goodness is the foundation of all praying. Listen to Hebrews 11.6. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Prayer is not only a matter of believing that God is present and listening, it is also a matter of believing that God rewards those who seek him. Think about that. Answered prayers are a reward. A reward is something desirable. It's something you enjoy receiving. A reward is a gift. 
And since gifts are good, the giver of the gift is good. Maybe you think of prayer as, as asking something of God that he really does not want to answer or give you. Maybe you see prayer as convincing God of something against his own wishes. And neither of those are an accurate view of asking in prayer. God takes pleasure in answering your prayers. He rewards you with answers. God is more willing to answer than you are to ask. You say, I'm pretty willing to ask. Well, God is more willing to answer. At the heart of answered prayer is God's goodness. He is for you. He is not against you. He is simply waiting for you to ask so that he can show himself good again and again. Prayer is fervent. Prayer is fervent. It says prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. This word translated fervently is the same word that's used to describe Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same word. So listen to how Luke, the writer of Acts, describes Jesus praying in the garden in his gospel account. He writes Luke twenty two forty four, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. There is a medical condition wherein a person is under so much stress and duress that the capillaries beneath the skin burst and blood actually comes through the pores. Whatever exactly was the case, the point is, is that Jesus agonized when he prayed. The decision that he had to make overwhelmed him as he contemplated obeying the will of God and going to the cross. Everything within Jesus recoiled at the thought of the full weight of judgment of every sin ever committed in the history of the world being laid upon him and plunging him into the hell of separation from the love of his Father. The mere contemplation of sin contaminating his perfect and his pure soul drove Jesus to fervently pray, not my will be done. For his desire, his desire was never to taste sin, much less to have the full fury of the wrath of God poured out upon him, which was what was before him. We deserve punishment. Jesus did not. We deserve wrath. Jesus did not. We are the sinners. Jesus was not. He prayed, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. So what was the will of God? Well, the will of God was that Jesus go to the cross. That was the Father's will. God loves you so much that he was willing for his love to cease flowing to his son at the cross so that his love can flow to you forever. If Jesus did not die, you would have no hope of being forgiven. And you will pay for your own sins. But because Jesus said, you, your will be done, your will be done, he went to the cross and he paid for those sins for you. Because he agreed to that. Because his fervent praying resulted 
in him being willing to do the will of his father. He paid the price of those sins for you so that you don't have to. And the decision to obey the will of his father, how was it arrived? It was arrived at through fervent prayer. Because Jesus fervently prayed, was assured of the will of the father, and went to the cross, you were called to place your trust in him. And because he rose from the dead, when you do call upon his name, you are assured of eternal life. But there's one more thing. Jesus prayed fervently, and he was heard. He was heard. When you pray fervently, when we pray fervently as a church, our prayers are heard as well. Your prayers are heard as well. But hear this. God does not answer your prayers because you agonize in prayer. That's not why God answers your prayers. God does not look down and say, well, they're praying really hard. They're doing a good job. They're really trying. For that reason, I'm going to answer their prayers. It's not why God answers your prayers. God does not answer your prayer because you agonize in prayer. God answers your prayers because Jesus agonized in prayer. It's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. It always is. And the same Jesus, the Son of God, who agonized in prayer in the garden, and as a result of that agonizing and that fervent praying, went to the cross so that your sins are paid for and so that you can receive that payment into your account and be forgiven and receive eternal life. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, because Jesus did that, because Jesus prayed fervently, God answers your prayers. Because of what Jesus did, you're now in fellowship with God. If you've called upon the name of him, of the Lord Jesus, you're reconciled to God. Because of Jesus' fervent praying, because of what he agreed to do, you can now come into the presence of God because he went to the cross as a result of that. But also, Jesus, as the one praying for you in heaven today, takes your fervent prayers and our fervent prayers, and he brings them before the Father. What is Jesus doing today? He's praying. The Bible tells us. He's interceding. He's already been to the cross. He paid the price for our sins. He shed his blood. He rose from the grave so that we can receive eternal life, so that we can be called children of God. He's alive. And what is he doing? He hasn't come back yet in the fullness of his glory. He hasn't come back to reign yet. What is he doing right now? He's praying. Interceding. What is he praying for? praying for you and me. He's praying for you and me. He's fervently praying for you and me. God hears and answers our prayers because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and because of what he is doing for us right now. You take your prayer and you pray it. And Jesus takes that prayer and he combines his prayer with it and he brings it before the Father. He perfects your prayers. We don't pray as we should, or we don't have the knowledge to pray in the complete will of God. We, we, we know so little. God doesn't ask us to know everything. He asks us to be simple. He asks us to tell him what we need. He asks us to pray with the knowledge that we have and to trust him and to trust that Jesus takes every prayer that's prayed fervently and brings them before the Father, perfects them, 
And God always hears the prayers of the Son. When we pray in the will of God, Jesus is joining his prayers with ours. And those prayers are always answered. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done. It's about what he is doing. God's not answering your prayers because you're so fervent and you agonize so hard. He's answering them because Jesus fervently prays. And just like when Jesus looked, when God looks at you and no longer sees a sinner bound for hell, if you're a Christian, but he sees a, he sees a, a saint, a holy one, a person forgiven, bound for heaven, in the same way that, that God gives you a new identity and looks at you with a new identity and calls you a son or daughter of God, in the same way God takes your prayers because of what Jesus is doing for us currently. And he hears them and he answers them. So don't be discouraged when you pray because you're not, you're not praying alone. You're praying with Jesus. Jesus' prayers are always heard. They're always perfect. He brings your prayers, feeble as they might be, before the Father. And the Father answers them. Fervent prayer was being made by the church to God on behalf of Peter. No prayer, no prayer that is prayed in the fervency of faith is ever lost. It's a promise. Let's pray. Father, we all know what it is to be in situations where we feel like there's no way out. This morning, we're reminded that there may not appear to be any way out, and there may not really be any way out, but you ask us to pray. You want us to pray. You hear our prayers. And as we bring those prayers before you, Lord, because of Jesus, our prayers are heard, and our prayers are answered. Help us to be a praying church, Father. Help us first and foremost to be a church that prays. And then we will behold you do, do mighty things beyond what we could ask or imagine. We expect that, Father. We look forward to it. And we'll give you the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.